Well, this time of year, lots of people have gardens growing that will soon be producing fruit if they aren't already. And if you've got a garden, you have put in the work to prepare the soil and plant the seeds. You've worked to keep the weeds to a minimum. Right? And hopefully at this point, your garden is showing promise and it's only a matter of time before you are picking ripe tomatoes and shelling peas and trying to figure out what you're going to do with all that squash. <laughs> you have sowed and soon you will reap. But sowing and reaping is not limited to those who garden. You see the same principles at work when you save for retirement, right? You sow for years and years and years and then hopefully reap a harvest at the end. You see it in education where you sow years of study and hard work and discipline and showing up at school day after day until eventually you reap the reward of a degree. It's such a commonplace of life that for all manner of things we say you reap what you sow. And Jesus often spoke of such things in order to teach his disciples and to teach us about the kingdom of God. And one of the places where he talked about sowing and reaping is right here in the Gospel of John chapter 4. And our focus this morning is going to be on verses 27 to 42. Now, I've already read the scripture, but I want to remind you what happens in the first part of this story. Jesus is in Samaria, and he meets a woman at a well, and uh, he begins to talk to her, which is something that she did not expect because Jews didn't have dealings with Samaritans, and she was a woman and he was a man. Just, there are all kinds of reasons why normally this conversation wouldn't happen. But Jesus engages this woman in conversation, asks her for a drink, and begins to talk to her about salvation, about how he could give living water, about how he could give eternal life. And then the conversation moved into more um, uh, controversial theological waters where the woman said, okay, I can tell you're a prophet, because she had, he had told her things about herself that there's no way he could have known unless God had revealed them to him. What she didn't know was that he is God in the flesh. That's how he knew. So she thought he was just a prophet. He is a prophet, but more than a prophet. And uh, so she said, okay, well, we've got this disagreement about where we should worship. The Jews say we should worship in Jerusalem. We Samaritans worship here on Mount Gerizim in Samaria. Uh, what's the right answer? Right? And Jesus said, well, that actually doesn't matter anymore. Uh, the time is coming and is now here when people will worship in spirit and in truth. It won't really matter where they are. What will matter is who they worship and how they worship, which that had always mattered too. right? But now uh, we would no longer be required to worship God in a particular place. All that would matter is, again, who we worship and how we worship. And the woman... Um, I guess had reached the point in the conversation where she thought, well, we're not going to settle this. So she just said, well, when the Messiah comes, he'll tell us all these things. He'll, he'll sort all this out, which is true. But she didn't expect him to say what he said next, which is, that's who I am. 
I'm the Messiah. I just gave you the answer. Because right? I'm He. Now, we pick up the story right there. Verse 27 27 says, Just then his disciples came back. Remember, his disciples had gone into town to buy food. Jesus stayed at the well. He was tired. right? He was truly human. He had a human body, just like all the rest of us. He had to sleep. He had to eat. He had to drink. He was tired and weary. And so he was staying there at the well while his disciples went into town to get food. And just at this time, they came back. And it says they were surprised to find Jesus talking to a woman. But they didn't say anything. Right? They didn't question it. And uh, the, the most interesting thing for us at this point, we've already kind of talked about those things. Uh, where we want to pick it up is in verse 28 where it says, So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Now, it's noteworthy that she left her water jar there. Right? That indicates that either she is so taken by what Jesus has said right, that she has completely forgotten about what she was doing there in the first place. Right? She came to draw water. Or she knows she's going to come back but she wants to tell other people what she has just heard. She wants some witnesses, right, to come. You come listen to this guy, right? Or she wants just to, to spread the word about who this might be. So she leaves her water jar and she goes into the town and she issues an invitation, right? She says, Come see. Come see for yourself. Come see what I have just seen. This is the same thing that happened back in chapter 1 when Jesus was first um, uh, having disciples begin to follow him. right? And I think it was Philip who went and found Nathanael and said to him, hey, we found the Messiah, it's Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathanael said, are you sure from Nazareth? The Messiah, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. And what did Philip say? Did he argue with him? No, he just said, come and see. Come and see for yourself. And that's what the Samaritan woman does as well. She goes into town and she tells the people, come and see what I have seen. Come and meet who I have met. Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. This man's not like any other man that I've met. There's something different about this man. And I want you to come and see too. I want you to come and meet him too. And then she says, Can this be the Christ? Could this be the Messiah? She doesn't assert, I have found the Messiah. And maybe that's because she's not sure herself yet. He said he's the Messiah. I don't know if he's right or not, but what if he is? Or it could be that she's just clever enough to know that people are more likely to respond if she poses this as a question instead of makes an assertion. If she says, hey, I know who the Messiah is. I found him. They might just scoff and say, yeah, right. I doubt it. 
he's probably just some charlatan you met and you've been duped and I'm not coming out there for that. But when she puts it in the form of a question, could this be the Messiah? I mean, I don't know. I'm not sure. Why don't you come check too? It rouses people's curiosity. Right? It gives them an opportunity to decide for themselves. And here's what's interesting about that and, and helpful about that for us as we think about engaging people in spiritual conversations, whether it's our own children and grandchildren, whether it's neighbors, friends, co-workers, or whatever, is that sometimes an invitation is more effective than a declaration. Now, the Bible has both. Right? Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel. Right? That's a declaration. That's a command. This is what you need to do. This is what's true. But sometimes in the Bible, what we find instead of a declaration is an invitation. Come and see for yourself. Come and read. Come and listen. Come and hear. Come and observe. What do you think about this? Could Jesus be the Messiah? All along the way in the Gospel of John, what John the Apostle is doing is inviting people to come and see Jesus for themselves. When Nathaniel said, or excuse me, when Philip says to Nathaniel, come and see, and when the woman of Samaria says to the townspeople, come and see, John is through them saying to us, come and see. Come and observe Jesus for yourself. Come and listen to Jesus for yourself. Who do you say that he is? What do you think? Do you believe he's the Messiah? John clearly does. And clearly he wants us to. But he doesn't always do it by saying, this is the case. Sometimes he does it by saying, come see for yourself. And sometimes... That's the more effective way to reach people. Depends on who you're talking to. Depends on the scenario. But I suspect, especially with somebody who you know is already going to be skeptical, right? You can tell them the Bible is true and you should believe it. But you probably won't get very far with that. You might get farther by saying, hey, what do you think about reading a book of the Bible with me and talking about it? Would you be willing to do that? Check it out for yourself? They're probably way more open to that. Way more willing to do that than they would be to just sort of jump on board if you tell them, hey, this is what you ought to do. This is what you ought to believe. So this woman issues this invitation. right? Come and see. And, And we would say the same thing. If anybody's here who's not a Christian, we would just say, we just want you to meet Jesus. We want you to come check him out for yourself. Read the Gospel of John. Read anything in the Bible, but read one of the Gospels especially. Read the stories about Jesus. Listen to the teaching of Jesus. Observe what Jesus did. We believe He's the Messiah. We believe He's God in the flesh. We believe His death on the cross paid the penalty for sin that all of us owe. We believe that His resurrection means that anybody who turns from their sin and trusts in Him can have eternal life with God forever. And we want you to believe that too. We're not going to force you, we're not going to twist your arm, but we are going to invite you to come and meet Jesus, to listen to Jesus, to consider Jesus, and we hope that you will believe in Jesus. That's what the woman does to the people in the town, and they respond. Verse 30 says, they went out of the town and were coming to him. 
She got a crowd of people interested and engaged coming to find out about Jesus. Meanwhile, John says in verse 31, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. They went into town to get food, and now they're back with the food, and they can't get Jesus to eat it. Why not? Verse 32, but he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And Jesus is often talking in uh, spiritual language, right? In spiritual terms that people don't understand. That's what he was doing when he talked to the woman about the water. I could give you living water and you'd never be thirsty again. She said, that sounds great because I don't want to come to this well all the time. Right? Well, that's not really what he meant. When he said, I have food to eat that you do not know about, the disciples misunderstood. Verse 33 says, so the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Like, he's got food to eat we don't know about. Is it like hidden in his cloak somewhere? Like, where, what is he talking about? So he explains in verse 34, Jesus said to him, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In other words, I have been satisfied. What food does is nourishes and satisfies us, right? He says, I have been nourished and satisfied in a way that you don't know about. Because while you were gone, I was having a spiritual conversation with this woman that I came here to meet, that I'm trying to draw to myself and to God, right? And make her a a true worshiper who worships God in spirit and truth. And so I've been nourished. I've been fed in a way that you don't even know about, right? Because again, Jesus's food His nourishment, what what fulfills him, is to do what the Father sent him here to do. And that's exactly what he's been doing. And so he begins to explain to the disciples what's happening in verse 35. He says, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? That's how it normally works, right? You don't, uh, there's no like... Jack and the Beanstalk, magic beans, you put them in the ground and you wake up tomorrow and and there you go, right? There's a long time between the sowing and the reaping, between the planting and the harvesting, usually months, right? And so Jesus says, you've got a saying, right? Yet four months, then comes the harvest. But he says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. In other words, harvest time is already here. We just got here. We just came to Samaria today, and we're about to reap a harvest here. So he says, verse 36, Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. And then verse 37, For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. Who's sowing and who's reaping? Well, clearly Jesus has been sowing. He's been sowing gospel seeds in this woman's heart. As he talked to her about eternal life and living water. As he talked to her about true worship. Worshiping God in spirit and truth. As he declared to her that he is the Messiah. He was sowing seeds of truth into this woman's life. And there's about to be a harvest of many Samaritans who are going to believe because of what Jesus has sown. Uh, And the 
reapers are going to be the disciples. Right? And, and some suggest that Jesus is indicating uh, that even John the Baptist or even the Old Testament prophets also would count as uh, sowers here. That for years, perhaps even, people have been sowing the seeds of truth that are now about to be reaped. So Jesus says in verse 38, I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. So you didn't even work for the harvest that you're about to reap. Others labored, others worked, others sowed and tilled the ground. They broke up the soil and all those things. And you're about to just walk into a great harvest. Now, um, that's often true for us, too. right? When we think about um, evangelism, missions... Uh, people coming to faith, whether again, whether it's our own children and grandchildren, or whether it's um, you know people in your family or people you work with or friends or neighbors or whatever, someone you meet on a trip randomly and get to talk about Jesus with. Oftentimes, the person who sows the seed and the person who reaps the harvest are not the same person. Right? Sometimes. You might be the first person to share the gospel with someone and see them come to faith. That can happen, right? That's happening in this story in John chapter 4. But but that's not usually how it happens. And even here, Jesus is saying there were, uh, Jesus could be saying there were seeds planted even before we got here that are a part of bringing about this harvest, right? And so it might be uh, a lesson you teach in Sunday school one day that bears fruit 20 years later. It might be a conversation you have on the front porch that bears fruit a year later. It might be somebody you meet randomly, moves in next door to you, you invite them to church, the next thing you know they're coming to faith, but they've had family members and friends praying for them for years. It's important to remember that because it's easy to get discouraged or think that your work doesn't matter if you're not seeing an immediate harvest. Why am I doing this? Why am I telling all these people about Jesus? I never see anybody become a Christian. What's wrong with me? I always hear about, you know, these people who have shared their faith with somebody and and they got saved. That doesn't happen to me very often. Maybe I just need to quit. Or I'm not seeing fruit from these conversations or these Sunday school lessons or whatever. You might not see the fruit. You might not even get to be there when the harvest comes. But that doesn't mean that your work doesn't matter. That doesn't mean that your sowing is not important. It is vital. Every conversation you have with someone about Jesus, every prayer you pray for someone who is lost, all of it matters. And the harvest will come in time. If you get to be there, praise the Lord. If you don't, you were still a part of it. You were still an essential and vital part of what God was doing in bringing that person to faith. So don't give up. Don't, start, don't stop sowing just because you're not reaping. The reaping will come. Now at this point, verse 39 says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him, Because of the woman's testimony, he told me all that I ever did. 
So it's not just one woman who has believed now, but because she issued this invitation to others in the town and told them what had happened, lots of them have believed in Jesus too, on the basis of her testimony. Because of what she said, because of what she told them about Jesus, they have come to believe in Jesus themselves. And so notice what happens, verse 40. When the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Now, we already talked about this at the beginning of the chapter a couple of weeks ago, Um, but it bears repeating and reminding ourselves that Jews did not have dealings with Samaritans. There was hostility there. There was division there. There was theological disagreement. There was, there was hundreds of years of separation, probably animosity, all those kinds of things, right? So that it's surprising, in a sense, that Jesus is even here. Much less that he's talking to this woman at the well. But these Samaritans who've come to believe in Jesus... They ask him to stay. And he stays. He doesn't say, sorry, passing through, this is not the kind of place I hang out. Don't you guys know we don't get along? No, he he initiated the conversation with the woman. He broke down the walls. That's part of why he came. And the Samaritans are recognizing that. They ask him to stay, and he stays. I mean, there is serious um, healing happening here, right? Uh, Serious uh, walls being broken down here by Jesus. And then it tells us in verse 41, it gets even better because he says, and many more believed because of his word. In other words, because of Jesus' word. Verse 42, they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, For we have heard for ourselves. Uh, That's the goal of every invitation, of every gospel conversation, of everything we do in, in trying to lead our kids and grandkids toward faith in Christ, is at some point we want someone to say, we want them to say, you know, I I believed in at first and in part because of what you told me. You, you told me about Jesus, and you told me about the Bible, and, and I believed it. But now, I believe it in a new way for myself. Because I've heard for, my, for myself, I've investigated it myself, I've listened for myself, I've met Jesus for myself, and now I believe not just because of what you told me about Him sort of secondhand, but now I have directly engaged with Jesus myself, and I believe because of Him, because of who He is, and because of what He has said. And notice what they believe at the end of verse 42. We know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. They know, they have come to believe that Jesus is the Savior, that He is the Messiah, the one that God had promised to come and save His people from their sins. But not only that, they've come to know that He's the Savior of the world. Why do they say that? Because they're Samaritans. 
They're not Jews. But Jesus came to them. And Jesus came for them. And they recognized by what He did and what He said that He was a Savior for all people. Not just for the Jewish people, but for Samaritan people, for Gentile people, for all kinds of people. It's the same thing that John 3.16 says. Right? For God so loved the world. Wait, He loved who? For God so loved the world. Not just God so loved the Jews. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. That is why Jesus told His disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And we know what the harvest is going to be from that sowing of seeds among Jews and Samaritans and Gentiles and people all over the earth. Because Revelation paints that picture beautifully for us. Where it says in Revelation 7, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray.